Well, good morning. Uh, today's message is entitled Loving Everyone. And of course, the focus, if you've looked at the passage, is going to be on loving our enemies. And uh, one way we can love our enemies is uh, not to gloat over uh, their team's loss yesterday, <laughs> and uh, or at least not too much, um, and instead uh, show love. Uh, hey, I want to begin the message today with uh, a story, and then we'll read the scripture. In the early church, stories of the martyrs, so-called martyrologies, were told to encourage the faithful to remain strong in the face of persecution, to inspire them to live out the faith in a manner worthy of our Lord, and perhaps at time even to shame the authorities perpetrating the crime upon the innocent fledgling church. The dates of the deaths of many of these martyrs became some of the earliest Christian holidays, dating back even earlier than the celebration of Christmas. Perhaps the most famous of the martyrologies was that of the aged. And when I say aged, I mean he was at least 86, perhaps uh, in his 90s or even 100 years old. The, the aged Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, who was purportedly discipled by the uh, Apostle John, He was burned at the stake and eventually stabbed to death around 155 A.D. The primary focus of the story of Polycarp is upon his exchange with the proconsul in the arena and his eventual death. But a rather interesting tidbit has to do with his arrest. When word came that the authorities were looking for Bishop Polycarp, ostensibly to crush the spirit of the Christians by convincing the most revered uh, bishop, the last person who had a direct connection with the apostles, by convincing him to deny the faith through uh, threats of torture and death. His friends urged him to run and hide. He initially refused but eventually relented and went to an estate outside of town. But, of course, the authorities caught up with him and found him uh, by torturing some of his young servants. And when they came to arrest him, he asked them if they could wait while he finished his prayers. It would only take about an hour. Seeing his age, they agreed. Then Polycarp did something amazing. He ordered food to be served to the men who had come to arrest him. And then he prayed for them for two hours. His actions so astounded the men that some of them felt shame for what they were doing. Right, And they even, some of them even supposedly turned to the Lord. This morning we're going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount by concluding the section of antitheses offered up by Jesus. So, if you'll take your copy of God's Word, let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And if... You're able, if you could join me by standing in honor of the reading of God's word. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to each one of us now, that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us, and that we would be touched by you this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in order to understand what Jesus is doing here, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at an overview of the Sermon on the Mount with particular attention to uh, this section we've been looking at for the last several weeks, the so-called antitheses. So when we think about the Sermon on the Mount and the section we've been looking at, we need to ask the question, what is Jesus doing in the Sermon? And by asking this question, we are asking what Jesus' aim is in both what he says in the sermon and how he says it. And when I say that, I mean to ask if there is significance in the order of the topics or the arrangement of topics that gives us insight into what Jesus is communicating. Now, some of you might be wondering about this question, for you may be aware that at least some biblical scholars view the arrangement of and the reporting of the topics in the sermon to be the creation of the gospel writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So perhaps we need to ask a somewhat different question. Maybe we should be asking, what is Matthew doing in his reporting of the sermon? Well, these little uh, scholarly debates don't really matter that much, right? Because no matter which question we ask, what is Jesus doing or what is Matthew doing, for those of us who hold the Bible to be divinely inspired, we're really asking the same question. What is God doing in the Sermon on the Mount? What is the Sermon on the Mount? And do the answers regarding its nature and structure give us insight into the meaning and application of our passage today? And, of course, as you might imagine, I'm going to say, yes, there is relevance uh, to our understanding of the passage that we read and its implications for us in the purpose, the structure, and the presentation of the sermon and its content. So we're back to our question. What is the Sermon on the Mount? What is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? How does Matthew's reporting of the Sermon on the Mount give us greater insight into our passage? And so very quickly, I want us to see three things about the Sermon on the Mount with particular focus on the larger section that we've been studying, this antithesis section. And then I think we'll be in a better position to look at the specific verses we have for us today. So the three purposes I want us to see in the sermon today, and you see them on your outline there. One, Jesus' rabbinic teaching and commentary on Torah. Jesus and Matthew's challenge to the hearers or readers. And third, the revelation of the gospel. So first, Jesus' rabbinic teaching or commentary on Torah. Interestingly, Jewish scholars who have looked at the gospels have noted that Matthew's gospel in particular portrays Jesus as the quintessential rabbi, engaging in what would later come to be known as rabbinic discussion of the law. We see Jesus sitting down with his disciples, much like a rabbi sitting down to, his, uh, to instruct his students who sit at his feet. That's in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It's interesting also that we are told here that upon seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down to teach his disciples. And he seems to direct the teaching to them. Right, we often think of his standing on top of the mountain, speaking to huge crowds, perhaps so large that some may not even hear what he's saying, as lampooned in some comedic movie makers who have attendees misunderstanding Jesus' words and teachings. Yet here we almost get the impression that Jesus' teaching is primarily for the insiders, right? For, for us, for his disciples alone. 
Now, I don't want to make too much of this because by the time uh, we get to the end of the sermon, we're told that the crowds were amazed at his teaching in 728. But it's worth noting that they're amazed because his, his teaching was distinct from that of the religious leaders, the scribes, told that in 729. So on the one hand, he's like a rabbi in that he's offering a teaching to his students in a very personal way. But on the other hand, he's different from the rabbis in that he teaches with authority. We see this throughout our section in particular, for he uses a formula. You have heard it said, presumably referring to the teachings of the religious leaders, but then he contrasts his teaching with theirs and appeals to his own authority, a move that was most unusual. Typically, rabbis would simply state the various opinions regarding the meaning of a scripture passage and leave it to the student or the congregant or the hearer to choose which he or she thinks is the best interpretation. So they'd sit there and say, well, rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that, rabbi so-and-so says this, etc., etc., and then just leave it at that. But Jesus says, well, you've heard it said this way, but I'm going to give you the true meaning of scripture. This makes Jesus' teaching so distinct that some scholars believe that in so doing, right, in appealing to his authority, he was actually making a claim about his deity. Right? He was pointing to himself by calling on his authority. I say unto you, for the meaning of God's word, he was claiming to be God. For no one but God would have such authority. I'm not so sure he's making an overt claim, but I do think it, that this is an indicator of his deity, something meant to raise the question of his identity in the minds of his hearers. However, what is important is that he gave his audience, his students and others, an authoritative and proper interpretation and application of the scriptures. And this leads us to our second point, Jesus' challenge to his hearers. Right? He offers up a challenge to his hearers uh, by reporting the sermon the way he does. And we see the challenge brought out in three ways. First, the righteousness surpassing the religious leaders in 520. Jesus said that our righteousness must surpass that of the religious leaders of the day, the persons who ostensibly follow the law's requirements, at least outwardly, For instance, consider Paul's claims about his own outward righteousness as a Pharisee in Philippians Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. You remember this? Paul says this, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, Paul says, I was blameless. He says, so the Pharisees were the most righteous people you could think of. And Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that. Right. The Pharisees were widely regarded among the populace as being sincere in their devotion to Torah and holy in their actions. And so when Jesus says that our righteousness must be better than that of the Pharisees and scribes, it would be like saying that if if you want to get to heaven, you have to be a better Christian than Billy Graham. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I measure up. In fact, last week, we had a group from Meadowbrook Baptist Church attend a conference at the Billy Graham Training Center in Asheville, North Carolina. 
For me, uh, and I don't know what this says about the speaker, but for me, the most inspiring thing there was to be amongst the members of the Graham family and to see the legacy of devotion to God, to his word and the gospel that Billy Graham has left. Right, The whole family is working in ministry in some way. Several of his children are internationally renowned evangelists like he was. God has truly blessed Billy Graham's legacy, and I believe part of the reason for that was due to his faithfulness to God's calling and faithfulness to the gospel. So there was shock value in Jesus' words here for your righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees. The shock value of Jesus' words shouldn't be lost on us. It's meant to lead the hearers to a sense of frustration, even desperation regarding their own inability to meet the standard. And this leads to the second way Jesus presents the challenge in the sermon. There's a progression of the challenge to be righteous. Throughout the sermon, we see Jesus raising the standard for righteousness, and he does so, again, in two ways or on two levels. One, specifically, right, throughout the sermon, each topic Jesus addresses is raised to a different level in order to meet the real requirement of the law. Again, the you have heard it said, but I say to you formula points to the higher level. Some have referred to the higher standard as the spiritual meaning of the laws. Of course, the important point is that the way Jesus raises the bar on each law or each rule makes meeting the requirement much harder than just technically not violating the rule. To be righteous, one must meet the spirit of the law, which involves not only outward actions, but inward desires, thoughts, motives, and the like. For example, it's not enough to simply refrain from actually sleeping with someone who is not your spouse, but you cannot even look lustfully at another if you are to be guilt-free concerning adultery. Secondly, argumentatively, there is also progression throughout the sermon from sins that are, we might say, relatively easy to refrain from, to the end where the sin is virtually impossible to avoid. And throughout the the sermon, the sins noted as properly interpreted become increasingly difficult to refrain from. Listen to how 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 it progresses. From hatred or cursing, not too difficult to avoid, to divorce, lust, to dishonesty, again, not terribly difficult to avoid, to... Avoiding retaliation and offering forgiveness to loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you and really meaning you. Now, it seems to me it's not too difficult to refrain from cursing others or to be honest in my dealings. But when we get to the last two, refraining from retaliation upon those who have assaulted us or our family members, right, or loving our enemies, we have come upon an exceedingly difficult requirement, perhaps even an impossible requirement. So the progression, the raising of the bar on the requirement for each sin, along with the development of the argument from relatively easy sins to avoid to increasingly harder sins from which to refrain, is meant to challenge the hearers or readers' sense of confidence in their holiness. And then this leads to the third component of the challenge, or the third step in the challenge. At the end of this section of the sermon, Jesus concludes with a stunning requirement, which we read in our passage today. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect like God. 
Now we'll talk a little a little more about this later, uh, since the focal since uh, the focal verse is part of the passage we are considering. But the concluding remarks here are meant to bracket this section of the sermon. Five forty eight serves as what we might think as a closing bookend to five twenties opening bookend, right? The the righteousness that has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the be perfect. These two verses encompass or set apart this section of the sermon, the section which is perhaps the most important of all. So Jesus begins by stating that the hearer's righteousness must exceed that of the religious leaders, and he ends by explaining just how much more holy we are to be. Godly holiness, literally. So he begins the challenge by saying that our righteousness must surpass that of the holiest people of the day. Just And just in case we get self-righteous or think our righteousness did actually surpass that of the religious leaders, right? I mean, a lot of us have thought that before, haven't we? Uh, when you watch a, a passion, a movie about the passion or something like that, you think, oh, I can't believe people thought they were holier. Or I, I wouldn't have been yelling crucify. I wouldn't have been yelling crucify. <laughs> But ironically, when we think that we are as good as or better than the Pharisees, we're just proving that we're not. So just in case we think our righteousness does surpass that of the Pharisees and we're therefore good with God, Jesus raises the bar even higher to sinless perfection. And this leads to the third thing Jesus is doing on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. The third thing he's doing is he's revealing the gospel. Right? The challenge Jesus presents to us is meant to leave us with a sense of desperation because we can't possibly measure up to the standard. The realization that we cannot measure up brings us face-to-face with two important and foundational truths of the gospel. Number one, we are all sinners and all have sinned, Romans 3.23. And number two, we are unable to save ourselves. The law cannot save us, Romans 8.3 and 4. And the sacrifices of animals under the law cannot save. That's in Hebrews 10.1. So the realization that we are all sinners and we cannot save ourselves drives us to look for the grace of God. If our works will never measure up, if perfection is required, then we need one to meet the requirement of perfection for us. Because I can't do it, and I don't think you can do it either. But God can. Only God can do it. Jesus has been pointing to himself as the locus of that grace throughout the sermon up to this point, and he's going to continue to do so. So so the sermon offers up Jesus' authoritative teaching on the law, a teaching which notes that all our efforts at meeting the requirements of the law will result in futility because perfection is the minimum requirement. uh, And so we all have to look to the Lord for grace. Now we're in a position to see more clearly the meaning of our passage on loving our enemies. In some ways, the passage we're looking at today is not really all that difficult to understand, right? I mean, it doesn't take a PhD to understand it. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Somewhat interesting, I think, taken in light of his words from John's gospel on the night of the Last Supper when he told his disciples he was giving them a new commandment that would distinguish them from all other people. You remember that one? It was... To love, for them to love one another. Now that was something astonishing since it is not all that unusual for members of a religious sect to love one another or to have a particularly close relationship with one another. Now I don't have time to explain just how this was a new commandment or why, uh, or why such love would be a distinguishing mark of the Jesus movement. 
Instead, I just bring it up to note the starkness of Jesus' command to love one's enemies here. Jesus' words here seem to be much more compelling, much more difficult, and a much more distinct, much more distinguishing for his followers. For to love one's enemies is to truly do something that the world will not understand. So let's look a little more closely at what he says here. First, there's a love-hate dichotomy in 5.43. He sets up a love-hate dichotomy, which doesn't really sound so strange, right? After all, hate does seem to be the antithesis to love, though some philosophers have suggested that antipathy is more the opposite of both love and hate. Now here, some scholars think Jesus is referencing a common line of thought among some Jewish interpreters of his day regarding hatred of enemies. For example, there was a Jewish apocalyptic community living out in caves near the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran. You may have heard of it because it's famous for all the scrolls and manuscripts found there and for the fact that it gives us extra biblical insight into the thinking and teachings of a first century Jewish sect, which some scholars see as similar to early Christianity. They interpreted such texts as Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? Psalm 139.21. Or Psalm 26.5. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. And others like that. They viewed these passages uh, as teaching that a proper disposition towards one's enemy is hatred. Since the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expressed hatred toward them, so also should they feel hatred toward a proper enemy. And who is a proper enemy? Well, to be sure, an enemy of the Lord, an enemy of Yahweh, is an enemy of his followers. This could be directed at foreign occupiers like the Romans or those who sold out to the Jewish people, the compromisers of the faith, like tax collectors, for example. Well, secondly, we see a requirement to love in 544. So by contrast, Jesus teaches a requirement to love one's enemies. The requirement to love, as you might guess, is to love one's enemies with a godly love, what many have described as an unconditional love. As many of you are surely aware, the Greek word agape, which is used here, is one of several words for love found in the Greek language and in the New Testament. In its biblical usage, it is reserved for the love of God or for love motivated by God or godly action or affection. It moves beyond brotherly love like philia and physical love, eros, to a love that is not dependent upon response by the loved, by the one loved. Jesus teaches his followers to love their enemies. He tells us to love our enemies with the same kind of love that God showered upon us. It is a love that is not dependent upon the worthiness of the recipient or the object. It is a love that is motivated by a godly view of the other, by godly compassion for the other, and that despite how the other responds to us or treats us. Remember... Christ reconciled us to God while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8. While we were enemies of God, Romans 5, 10. Well, 
In addition, Jesus offers up reasons for the requirement for loving even our enemies. And he offers up three reasons for that. They form a kind of argument just in case his command, even though it should be, is not enough. Right? We like children. I mean, my children always, I tell them to do something. They still ask, why, why, why? Right? They want an explanation as to why. Well, Jesus here thinks, well, okay, I'll give you an explanation as to why. Here's why. Number one. He says that we must love our enemies so that we may be children of God in 545, the first part. Let me say right now from the beginning that, that, that this point should not be construed as promoting some kind of works-based righteousness or salvation. By saying we can be children of God, he doesn't mean to say that we become children of God through obedience to this rule. Rather, he is noting the simple truth that children look like their parents. And by this, I don't really mean family resemblance, but more the basic truth of like begetting like. Animals produce offspring after their kind, the Bible says. To be a child of God is to look like God, to resemble God in attitude, action, and heart. Jesus appealed to this same basic truth when he confronted the Pharisees for their hardness of heart. They more closely resembled the devil than God in their attitudes towards him and his words and the word of God, right? Jesus said in John 8, if you were children of God, you would welcome me, but they didn't. And so you're children of the devil. So if we would follow after Christ, if we would be children of God, we must ask the Lord to create in us a love for others that is supernatural in nature, a love that is understanding, forgiving, patient and unconditional. Ultimately, God's love is infinite, right? God's love is infinite. And the closer we can approximate that kind of love, the closer to God we will be. Second, Jesus appeals to the parity of all persons. He notes that all persons are equal before God in 545. The second part, all are created by God. All are made in his image. All fall short of his glory. All have the capacity for good and evil. All have a moral nature. All have a soul that will live beyond this life. Here's the bottom line. We have no right. We have no right to sit in judgment of others. We have no right to look with derision upon that which God has made and declared good. We have no right to hate those whom God loves. Right? How dare we? The presumption it takes to hate others whom God loves is staggering, if you think about it. Especially since we are no better. As the saying goes, but for the grace of God... So there go I. All of us, no matter how righteous we think we are, no matter how much worse we think that other person is, all of us will stand before God one day, and when we do, everything will be laid bare. He knows everything about us. He knows our innermost thoughts, the ones we don't share with anyone else, right? the ones we don't even dare speak. And yet he loves us, Despite that, and if God can love me, even when he knows me as I truly am with all my warts and scars and evil thoughts, then I can love the other whom I don't know nearly as well as I think I do. Third, a higher standard in 46 through 47. 
Jesus calls his followers to a higher standard, which is to be expected, right? Shouldn't followers of a holy God be expected to live to up to a higher standard than those who are not followers of a holy God? There's not anything particularly spectacular about loving those who love you or being kind to those who are kind to you, right? Everyone does that, Jesus says. Notice, Jesus here uses a form of shame to motivate his hearers. Even the Gentiles do that. Even the tax collectors do that. We might even say it like this. Even the Romans do that. In Jesus' day, that would have been insulting. Now, I'm not sure how to put that in today's vernacular, but he draws upon their pride and their cultural divisions to shame them. Those that they consider to be the lower level persons morally, even they love their own, right? We might say even hyenas love their own. (laughs) We must do better. Jesus calls us to be countercultural in our dealings with others. We should be noticeably different from the world. Our love should be so different that it causes others to see the holy in us. So the kind of love we're called to is a holy love in 548. He closes the section by highlighting the outflow of the kind of love we are to have. Agape, as noted before, if we have agape love for our enemies, we will be perfect as God is perfect. Now, 548 is an obvious parallel to the requirement found in the Torah, in the law, to be holy as I am holy. It's found six times throughout Leviticus. It's in Leviticus 11, it's in Leviticus 19 and 20 and 21. This was a requirement that the Lord put upon Israel. God expected Israel to be holy because he called her out of bondage to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant by being a holy people, a light to the nation to show the nations what it is to be the people of God. This charge can rightly be seen as applying today to us, the church, to show the world what it means to be a people committed to Christ and committed to one another. But here's the problem, of course. Israel didn't do it. Israel failed to be holy as the Lord is holy. Unless we get too critical, let us consider how Jesus uses the Levitical requirement upon Israel to challenge Israel. His followers. Loving one's enemies is virtually impossible. And this is meant to show us our inability to fulfill the law on our own in an ultimate way. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges us to meet not only the outward requirements of the law, but the spiritual meanings of the law, culminating in the requirement to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who seek to harm us, to pray for those who persecute us. We may be able to return curses with blessings or to pray for those who persecute, but I dare say it's nearly impossible to in and of ourselves, to really love our enemies. We cannot love with the kind of love God, uh, the kind of love God has unless the Holy Spirit lives within us, loving others through us. Our own selfishness, our own self-righteousness gets in the way. Our need to be justified prevents us from loving others who have done or seek to do us harm. And this is where Jesus' sacrifice comes in. His sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins, releases us from the need to be justified in ourselves, even while justifying us before God by his blood. 
when we accept him as Lord, we are not only forgiven of our sins, but the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us to love others by enabling us to die to self and live for God. This is the key to loving others, and it is the meaning of Jesus' teaching here. So the first step in meeting the requirement is to accept that we cannot meet the requirement and that Jesus has done it for us and receive him as Lord and Savior. And in so doing, you'll be forgiven of your sins, you'll be released from bondage to sin, and granted eternal life. The second step, that one for which, uh, that one for all of us who are already Christians is to put into practice the practical steps Jesus offers here. Actually pray for your enemies. Ask God to bless them, even if you don't mean it at first. Ask God to change your heart, and the Holy Spirit will begin to work through your faithful prayers to Him for your enemies. The Holy Spirit will begin to create in us a love for others. And in so doing, he will make us more like God, more like Christ, so that others will see Christ in us, and so Christ will live through us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this day. We pray that uh, we might uh, yield to the work of your Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, uh, in us. For those of us who have never accepted Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they would receive the Holy Spirit, be reborn, and be new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.